Well, good morning, everyone. So glad to be here with you this morning. Today, I have the honor and the privilege to continue on in our series here in the book of Hebrews. Last week, Pastor Dan went through chapter 4, 1 through 13, and I would encourage you, if you have not had an opportunity yet to listen to that, to to watch it, uh, whatever, make sure to do that. One thing I love about this book is that it connects. As all scripture does, this book connects together. This is a letter that all works together. And so it's important to know what happened previously to know what's coming. So just make sure that you check that if you haven't yet. Last week, what Dan was going through in 4, 1 through 13 gave us a deeper look at rest. It was a deeper look at rest. And I really appreciated the way that he broke it down because it brought into play what rest actually looks like for a believer. So rest isn't necessarily physical rest. Sitting on a beach somewhere, toes in the sand, now we're in the world, cold beverage in hand, life is good today. Anyone know that? Anyone? Yeah, yeah, I definitely stole that from an early 2000s country song, so I'm sorry about that. And yes, that is in fact rest. That's, fat, that's rest that's necessary in our lives. That's the Sabbath rest that Scripture talks about. But that's not the rest that's being discussed here in last week's passage and this week's passage. Rest in this context is the always present knowledge that if we believe that Jesus is the Savior, that by his blood we are healed, confessing with our mouths Jesus is Lord, believing in our hearts God raised him from the dead, We have salvation in him, and this is where our true rest resides. We have rest knowing that we've been rescued from the grasp of sin and Satan. It's an already but not yet rest that Dan talked about. We can rest in this knowledge of our salvation even though we're still in this sinful, broken place. We can find this rest in the word. We can find it in prayer. We can Find it in this continually ever-growing relationship with our Savior. I think this concept of rest is beautiful. But I think at times, it might be extremely hard to grasp this type of rest because we are weak, because we are broken, because the world is messed up. And in the midst of the tests the trials, the temptation, and the weakness, I think it's extremely easy to lose sight of what that true rest is. The rest being talked about, it kind of reminds me of every single Disneyland or Disney World trip I've ever taken. And any of you that have gone there, you'll know what I'm talking about. Anytime you go, it's, it's nonstop. It's a rush from one line to the next line to the next line. You wait in line to go on a ride or to get a popcorn bucket or something like that. You walk 20 miles a day all for the sake of seeing everything that you possibly can. Now, that might not sound like rest. And physically, that is not rest. But mentally, you know how incredible that is. You know the the fun that you're having. You know the smiles on the faces. You know the relationships that are built. You know there's a reason that you push through the pain. And you know, as with any analogy, they always fall apart, right? And this one does in a million different ways, so I acknowledge that. But I think it's good that we understand this rest as we get into this passage today. 
we have a knowledge we can rest in, even when the physical is still tired and broken. And this ties us directly into what we're going to be talking about. So as the author of the book goes through what we talked about last week, um, we talked about this rest and that the Israelites failed within that to trust God. They weren't resting in the trusting. We also see that there's a push to not make the same mistakes that they did. How can we do that when everything seems so hopeless, though? Yeah, that's a great author of Hebrews. But how can God ever understand what we're going through? He's God. He's high and lifted up. He's the name above all names, as we just sang. He's sitting on the throne. He's the majesty over all things. So yeah, I get that I should trust him, but it's so much harder knowing that this world is falling apart. Not only that, how can I rest when I myself am so messed up? I don't deserve anything. So yeah, this is all well and good, but like the Israelites hearing about those giants in the promised land, I'm scared of what's coming. I'm scared he doesn't actually understand my brokenness and the temptations I go through because he is God. And because of this, I'm scared to approach him in my brokenness. I love, I love the Bible. I would hope so, right? But it's cool how God puts the Bible together. Because I can just see the way this is laid out in Scripture and these passages, the way it's laid out, and how he immediately answers these questions that are being asked before they're even asked. It's like a game you play in middle school. I don't know how many of you have ever done middle school student ministry, but it is a very precise way that you play games with middle schoolers. So you start off with what the game is. You explain, hey, this is the game. Here's some details. And before anyone could say a word, you explain every single rule, every single detail, every single scenario so that there's no questions needed. Otherwise, you're going to get one little hand that pops up and then 35 hands pop up and they make no sense and the questions are all over the place. You want to answer the questions right away. And that's how I see this passage playing out. With all these questions coming up, God, how can this rest happen? It doesn't make sense. How can I rest in you when everything's falling apart? And he loves us and he loved the people enough to dive right into it. He answers those lingering questions the two questions I came up with for this are, how can he understand, number one, and then number two, how can I ever approach him? These are the questions that we're going to be answering this morning. And coming to the conclusion, is Jesus better? That's the final question we're going to ask at the end of this. Is Jesus better? Go ahead and pray. Oh God, you are so good. You are greatly to be praised. I just want to thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together to worship you, God, to sing songs to you, to open your word. God, I pray right now you would speak through me, God. This is all for you and by you. And God, I pray that from this you would change hearts and minds and lives. 
God, I pray that not a person in here would leave here without growing in their relationship with you. And God, if they don't know you or don't have a true relationship, that you would stir in their hearts and they would desire to know who you are to know how this rest is possible. God, we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you haven't yet, everyone go ahead, open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. Verse 14 starts off like this. It says, since then. Any, any of you that have heard me preach before, you know I really love the statements that point back to something. And I really appreciate the authors in Scripture that point back to make a statement about what's to come. So with this since then, it's actually giving us that oh-so-necessary understanding of why what's about to be said is being said. So in this case, it's pointing back to what we just talked about, about the Israelites' lack of trust, which from that resulted in a lack of true rest. And in this, in this context, there's a warning, and there's a push for the people being written to and us today to not fall into that same trap. Not trusting God, not finding our rest in the cross which results in a lack of rest altogether. With all this, there's an acknowledgement, however, that this is not a one-and-done kind of deal. Meaning, for the most part, as humans, it's difficult to say we always trust in God in everything. And we're going to see this in a second in, a, in one of the verses Dan preached on last week in 411. It's hard that to, to daily find our rest in our salvation, in the trials, in everything that we're going through, sometimes it's difficult to do that. Throughout my life, this, is, this has been a real struggle for me, and it is to this day. Uh, one story that really hits home for me with this, though, is seven years ago, when Jen and I went to get Malachi, our son's ultrasound done, his 20-week ultrasound, we walk in, uh, they, they hook her up, they do all the things that they're supposed to do, and the nurse walks away and starts whispering in the corner with someone else, and then comes back and looks again, and then goes away, and then all of a sudden this doctor comes in, and, and he starts looking, and then they walk away and talk, and he brings in these books, and, start, and we're like, whoa, 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 what is going on here? This is kind of crazy. And they look at us, and they tell us, hey, just so you know, your son is missing a part of his heart. We're like, What? Wait, what do you mean? We're at 20 weeks, and we're just finding out he's missing a part of his heart. Oh, and by the way, he'll have to have surgery immediately when he's born, and there's a potential that he could die. And hearing this as this is our, our first son, uh, we had just prior to this had a miscarriage, and so this was, this was really hard to think through and process. We in that moment were not finding our rest in the cross because, wow, that was, that was hard. And then from there, they said, okay, you have to go to Children's Hospital immediately. So we left, and on the drive there, I, I mean, we're just in tears. Like, God, why would you ever do this? But it was the weirdest thing, as we were praying about it, when we came to that conclusion of, wow, we, we're not trusting God. Like, this child is his. Why, why aren't we? We prayed about it. We gave it to him, even in the, the craziest trial that we had been in, it, that we're in in that moment. 
So we get to Children's Hospital, and God had given us this supernatural peace as we went in. We go in, and there's one doctor that comes and looks, and then the same thing starts happening, happening like whispering in corners, whispering here. There's 10 doctors that were standing in this room by the end of it, and they go, hey, crazy. He's not missing a part of his heart. Actually, he has something called situs inversus totalis, which means all his organs are completely flipped. So we were looking at him upside down. So it looked like he was missing a piece of his heart, but he's not. And then the craziest part is that normally with this, all of the, the veins and things have to be working perfectly with blood flow, and most of the time it doesn't work like that. And so there has to be a surgery that's done. And they go, this is, this is a miracle. Everything's perfect. We, we don't understand why this is happening, but he's perfect. And he's upstairs right now running around, kids active and crazy. And I'm not saying this is the conclusion to every story of pain in our lives, but I'm saying that in that pain, we found rest through the cross, not through the, physical, the, 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 the situation that was at hand. We had to give it to him, and there was rest in the cross, even when it was hard. There's a desire, but it's not always easy. And that initial finding out, it's not easy. But we have to strive for that. And that's being emphasized in 411 that was talked about last week. Let's therefore strive to enter that rest so no one may fall to the same sort of disobedience. So this strive, I believe, is the key word here. Strive means to make great efforts to achieve or obtain something. It also can mean a struggle or to fight vigorously, to fight. I think that's a pretty powerful word being used right there. Showing that as believers in this world, it's a fight to remember this rest. Yet we should daily look to the cross to remember, knowing that it is difficult. With those initial questions we talked about that can creep in so easily. This is, this is too hard, God. You don't understand. I'm trying to strive, but I am so messed up. How can I be in your rest when I am so broken? And I know these are things each of us in our lives have asked. And in this verse 14, it so eloquently answers says this in 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So with everything that was just said, talking about the rest, talking about the, the striving, the desire, the, the comprehension of the cross and looking to it for that rest, with all this being said, we have a great high priest. This might seem like a pretty basic statement, like, yeah, okay, Jesus is the great high priest, cool, let's move along. But to the people at this time that, that this was written to, this would have been massive. This example of the great high priest gives us a clear picture that the Jewish people at the time would have seen even more clearly. So before we continue, it's necessary to understand who the high priest was in the context of the old law found in Leviticus 16. And that is, that context is the lens that the people would have been looking through. 
So the high priest was an individual that came from the line of Aaron. That was the line of the priest. And this guy had a multitude of responsibilities. But the most important was on Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. And that was the Day of Atonement, which actually literally translated is Shabbat Shabbatan, or the Sabbath of solemn rest. I find that so interesting. When I read that, I was like, wow, isn't that cool how Scripture works? Everything that we discussed previously regarding rest. So the day that sin was atoned for, this day was the day of true rest. Everything, it lines up so perfectly. And on this day of Sabbath of solemn rest, once a year, the high priest was responsible, as I just said, for making atonements not only for his sin, but the sins of all the people. The way he did this was by entering the tabernacle, which was a mobile sanctuary, and it was constructed while the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, and it was composed of three different areas. You had the outer court, you had the holy place, and then you had the holy of holies. So on this day of atonement, only the high priest was allowed to enter the holy of holies, because this is the place where God resided. This was the place. It was a, it was a small little windowless room, and it had a veil separating the people from God. So this guy, this priest, he had tons of responsibilities to accomplish prior to entering that room. And if you go through Leviticus 16, you'll be able to see all of it. And it was, it was pretty extensive. And if he failed in any one of these areas, he died the second that he walked in there. And the funniest part, I think, is that they would actually tie a rope to the priest's ankle so that when he walked in, if he died, because no one else can walk in there, they could just pull him right back out. So as stated previously, once in the room, he would make sacrifices for the sins of the people and himself. And this would be the pattern that would have to continue until a perfect sacrifice was made. So the concept of this great high priest going to God on their behalf, this would have been commonplace in their culture. They would have fully understood what was being said. But in this verse, in other places in the book, like 2.17, which says this, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiations for the sins of the people. So in this, in the passage we're talking about, even if you get into chapter 7, it talks about this great high priest. Jesus is being referenced to as not just a high priest that they would understand, but a great high priest. For the people at the time, this had to be mind-blowing to process. The high priest made sacrifices for the people, but Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice for the people. If the high priest failed on that day of atonement, he would die. But Jesus died so that we could live in this right relationship with God forever. When the high priest would enter the room, there was a veil between God and man. When Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice for the people, the veil between God and man was torn from top to bottom. So you can see this correlation between the high priest and Jesus it takes this passage in the first few words to an entirely new level 
once we have a comprehension of what they saw and what we should see within this context of the high priest. It brings us into the next section of this verse that says, he passed through the heavens. So this right here is, is another beautiful picture brought to life. Just another few words that would mean so much to them. So the earthly high priest was only ever able to, in his humanity, pass through the tabernacle with the honor to pass through to the Holy of Holies. This verse brings into play that Jesus is so above the earthly high priest that he passed through the heavens, not just to the Holy of Holies. This shows his transcendence. He's exalted high above the heavens, and it says that in 726. We can also see a push for this in Ephesians 4.10. It says this, He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Then the, the verse adds one more element to the description of Jesus being put together here. It says, Jesus, Son of God. This might also be one of those that you see it and go, cool, Jesus' name, Oop, keep going. But these three words, these three names and descriptors embodies what's called the hypostatic union, which is Jesus being fully man and fully God. To put these names together in succession as they are shows Jesus, which is the earthly name given to the function of God who came to save, and is placed ever so perfectly with the title of Son of God, revealing both his full humanity and his full deity. Which, as you're going to see shortly, is vital to the coming verses. So up to this point, we've seen the author pointing back to true rest, then showing Jesus as the true high priest, which makes that true rest possible the true high priest that made that sacrifice, the true high priest that is above all things, passing through the heavens, the true high priest that is in fact fully man, fully God, taking us to this next line. Let us hold fast our confession. So with this understanding of everything that's been said, knowing it takes striving to continue trusting God in the true rest, Seeing Jesus for who he truly is and what he has done, seeing his power over it all, I believe this starts off as a reminder before moving forward that Jesus is the one they will receive their strength from to be able to hold fast this confession in the pain and trials that we're going to talk about. Now, what is this confession, you might ask? I'm so glad you did ask. Let's talk about it. The confession itself is our proclamation of our belief in the good news of Jesus. This passage is a firm reminder of the way that we continue to strive. The way we continue to move forward trusting God is to remember this confession. Remember that Jesus lived the perfect life. He died on the cross and rose again for our sake confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord above all. And the sense, in my mind, is, is immediate. 
It's immediate action when we're talking about this confession, holding fast to this confession of the good news of Jesus Christ that we're proclaiming. It's not like a, hey, okay, I, I guess I'll hold on whenever I feel like it. No, it's an immediate. It says, hold fast. It's like the author here, he was starting to get excited a little bit. He's starting to get hyped up. Like, listen, this world is hard. It's broken. Don't make the same mistakes that happened before. Look at Jesus. The only way you're going to make it out is holding fast to him. All I can think about when I read this is a ship at sea. And just this massive storm comes up. It's like my tattoo. There's like a storm, a ship. There you go. There's your visual for it. So the storm and the ship is being, the waves are hitting it from every angle. And, and it doesn't look like they're going to make it out. But the sailors, they know what to do as the boat tosses and the waves break over the sides. They know to hold fast. Grab onto that boat and don't let it go. If you sit in the corner of that boat, not holding on, the only thing you have, you're going to get sucked out of that boat and you're going to drown. But if you hold fast to that boat, even through the pain, even through the trial, even through that hard, that, that hard season of life when the waves are hitting you at every angle, if you are holding fast, you will find rest at the end of that storm. Even through the storm, you are finding that rest in the one that secures you and holds you. Takes us into verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. For we do not have a high priest unable to sympathize. The do not here is really important. It's important because so often, I think it's easy to feel disconnected from God. Because let's face it, he's God. He's king above all. But this do not make sure to change that immediately in the context being presented. We do not have a high priest that is unable to sympathize. The high priest at that time was the one able to sympathize with the people the most on a real level. He was a messed up, broken guy. They were messed up, broken people. And he was going in to this holy of holies to make atonement for their sins. They could really relate. Jesus did this in the most profound way, though. This is the kicker. This is the hard part to grasp for some people. Jesus did not sin as the other high priest did. He had to be perfect. Jesus should not be on the same plane as us messed up sinners. But this is saying he is with one vital point, the caveat that he did not sin. So he can, in fact, sympathize with us. He understands. He was in every way tempted. He was tired. He was hungry. He was cold and hot and sad and lonely. I think so often as I was even processing this, we tend to think about Jesus in the sense of temptation, that he was tempted but didn't sin. We think of it in the sense of like he went through the pain and didn't sin. But how often do we think through that he went through every gamut of the human experience, being cold and hungry and sad and lonely and feeling that brokenness yet without sin? 
Therefore, he can sympathize. He can sympathize as the high priest at the time. And he does this on an even deeper level than the high priest ever could. Because not only did he do it perfectly, but at the same time, he still had to take on the full wrath of the Father for our sins. I love the song that the the band just did, that he became sin who knew no sin. He was treated like a sinner. He was the sacrificial lamb. And in this, can sympathize with us on a level we could never comprehend. We do not have a high priest that cannot sympathize. He too was tempted, yet he did not fall. And there's a perfect example in Matthew 4, 1 through 11. I'm not going to go through the whole passage. It's very long. But in this, Satan tempts Jesus. And it says in there that Jesus is tired. It was 40 days. He's hungry. He's probably feeling really broken physically right now. Yet he found his true rest in the Father and did not sin. He didn't fall or fail when it came to this. He is the one we can look to because he is the one that truly understands. And that answers the first lingering question that we would have. How can he understand? Because he is fully man, fully God, who went through the ringer as we are, but he did it without sinning. He can sympathize with us and he does sympathize with us. And we're told to strive. As we saw, it's a fight. It's a fight for this truth of the gospel. And we know he's with us every step of the way in that fight. Leading us, helping us, sympathizing with us, and pointing us to the true rest, even when life is hard. Which takes us into verse 16. It says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So when you think of a king... You think of his throne room. Do you imagine just a bunch of random people wandering in now like, hey, king, what's up? Good to see you, man. Like, hey, I'm just going to come hang out with you, and then I'm going to take off. All right, do you want something to eat? That's not what I imagined ever when it comes to a throne room and a king sitting on his throne. Because in the monarchy-style government, the king is above all. He is the unapproachable. He is the untouchable. The only way to stand before the king is to be summoned or to be a very high advisor that would still likely have to be summoned to even step foot in front of the king. And if you did approach the king uninvited, you know what's going to happen? You're going to die. We see a great visual of this in the book of Esther, Esther 4.11. King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, he put out this proclamation. It says, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court, Without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. Now this verse we just read, not Esther, the verse in Hebrews, is saying that we are to boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence. What an interesting concept for these people and for us today. We're not told to wait until we're summoned. We're not told if we enter that throne room, we're going to die. It says with confidence approach. The golden scepter is still in the king's hand. 
Yeah, instead of waiting for the scepter to be presented or withheld, taking us to our death, the golden scepter is always held out. We can approach with confidence. And this isn't an approaching in, in, a, in cockiness on approaching that we deserve to be there. But it's a beautiful understanding that we can approach only by and through Jesus. Jesus died in our place so we could approach the king. In this throne, it's not just any old throne. It says it's the throne of grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. So taking this to mean that even though we don't deserve it, we can always come before the king because of what the great high priest did for you and I. And from this, we can find true rest, even when there is none. Answering question number two, how can I ever approach him? The answer is simple. It's through Jesus we can approach the throne. We're all messed up, broken sinners. And even with this known, we're still told to come. God knows how messed up we are, and he still tells us to come. Right now as you sit here, I want you to ask yourself the two questions that we presented at the beginning. How can he understand and how can I approach him? If you're going through all this, these might seem like simplistic questions. But I believe they're questions that believers are consistently battling when they're not holding fast when they're not in true rest, relying on the true high priest. I, I've actually, these are real things that I have heard, and I hear different, different variations of this all the time. Well, I can't be baptized because I, I'm just too messed up. I have a lot to fix before I can do something like that. I just have a really bad past. <laughs> I know I need to figure out a bunch of things, and I definitely know I need to figure them out before I can bring them to God or before he will love me. Man, I just can't seem to stop looking at those things I shouldn't be looking at. But I can't go to God with it because he's perfect. He would never understand the struggle that I'm going through. Or I just feel so gross after doing that stuff. I, I just can't. I can't go to him. These are real situations that happen to believers. That even knowing what Jesus did, forget the truth. Where are you today? Are you in this place today? Are you having a hard time believing the truth? Or do you feel so messed up that you don't feel like you can approach the king? Church, I pray that from going through this passage, you see the great high priest. You see the king and you see the true rest available because of what was done for you. When the tough times come, lean into your Savior, not away. You are never too messed up to approach the throne of grace. And from this passage, for the sake of application, we need to daily ask these questions. When you get out of bed, when you're sitting there, rubbing your eyes, getting ready for the day, ask yourself these questions. 
Are you holding fast to the truth as you go out into the world? Do you truly believe Jesus is there, understanding, loving, in your brokenness, that he is there, leading you towards that true rest? We need to ask ourselves if we truly believe we can stand before that throne of grace in confidence, even though we don't deserve it. And number four, ask if we are in the true rest made available to us by confidence in the cross. Despite our lack of belief, despite our brokenness, we have a great high priest that passed through the heavens for us. Therefore, let us hold fast what it is we know and hold close to our hearts this beautiful truth. Even though we're weak and tempted, he's there to pick up the pieces because Jesus is, in fact, better. Let's go ahead and pray. Oh, Lord, I just want to thank you so much again for this passage. Thank you so much for your words and just how, how you connect the dots with so many different things in so many different ways. God, I pray as we leave here today, we would truly trust in you. God, that we would find our rest in you even when life is hard and falling apart. God, I pray that you would use us um, for your glory, for the sake of your kingdom, God, but in the midst of that, we would never forget we can go boldly to your throne of grace. God, we love you and praise you in Jesus' name.